And it's good to see you all on this balmy, balmy Chicago morning. <laughs> if I haven't met you, uh, my name is Father Aaron Damiani, and it's just good to worship with you and behold Jesus with you. We're, we're in 1 Peter. I invite you to turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 10 is going to be our text this morning. Adrian Smith is a wine critic, and he writes for a wine magazine. He asked the question, why does poor quality soil make such great wine? Why does poor quality soil make such great wine? You know, for, for most of us, you know, and for most of agriculture, we're, we're accustomed to the idea that uh, for vegetables and fruits, you want plenty of water, rich nutrients, fertile soil, so it's like some good Illinois soil to grow crops. That usually works for most of agriculture, but it is not true for uh, the beloved grapes that produce the best wine. Uh, what happens is if you plant vines next to a luxurious stream of water and really great soil, what you get is lazy grape syndrome. Lazy grape syndrome. What happens is that the roots soak up the water and make the leaves and the shoots and the grapes look fresh and plump and great, but really all it is is just full of water. It's not full of nutrients, necessarily. Um, so this is why you get the watery taste of some, some wines, which I'm sure you know about, the watery taste of the wines. Um, you love your wines. So, but, uh, but here's what happens with poor soil. This is what Adrian Smith notes. In poor soil, instead of putting their focus into vibrant leaves and shoots, the roots um, uh, push down deeper into the soil to find more nutrients. And then as soon as it find, finds nutrients, it wastes no time in shooting it directly up to the grape. What happens is that there's actually more surface area covering the soil. So the roots go down, and anytime it finds nutrients finds actually more nutrients, and it's more efficient in sending those nutrients up to the grape. Um, when planted in poor quality soil, all a vine wants to do is to push deeper into the soil environment and spend its focus and energy on creating a nutritious and energy-filled grape. Interesting, isn't it? That bad soil, arid soil, in France, in, in Arizona, bad climates, bad soil, not a lot of nutrients, and yet some of the best wines come from those soils. Now, how can urban soil produce Christians with resilient faith? How can urban soil produce Christians with urban, uh, uh, urban soil produce Christians with resilient faith? Um, in the city, there's more skepticism around Christianity. There's more suspicion. In some cases, there's more outright hostility to um, claims of faith, especially Christian claims of faith. In urban soil, there is also more demands on your time and energy. You've got to put more energy into the projects that are keeping you here. There's a lot more pressure here to stand up to and to face. So um, how could spiritually arid conditions in the city of Chicago produce mature and passionate disciples of Jesus? That's the focus of our Eastertide series. Resilient faith in urban soil. 
Um, and uh, we're going to look at 1 Peter 2, asking some questions. These questions are going to uh, help us nurture resilient faith in the city of Chicago so that our root system can push down deeper and deeper and send life-giving nutrients to the grapes of our life. So let's look at three questions to help us nurture resilient faith in our city as we look at 1 Peter 2. First question is this, what is nourishing your soul? What is nourishing your soul here in Chicago? We all need nourishment for the soul to keep going in the city, am I right? We all need nourishment. We're all going to feed on something to keep us going here. So what is nourishing your soul? I love what Peter does. He's going to contrast two different forms of nourishment. One is a very malnourishing source of nourishment. Okay, it's a non-nourishing nourishment. And then he's, got, he's going to say, hey, here's the pure and undiluted juice that's really going to give you the best grapes. All right, so let's see him uh, compare and contrast. Verse 1, here's the malnourishment. Put away all malice. Put away it. Put it away. All the malice, all the deceit, hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now, here's the nourishing part. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Put away all the malnourishment and long for the pure and undiluted spiritual milk. All right, so anyone here ever been tempted to do the Whole30? Anyone familiar with the Whole30 where it's like you can't eat anything except for grass-fed beef and vegetables, basically? Um, here's how you start the Whole30, um, and I've never done it. I've just been tempted to do it. Um, it, you, first, the thing you have to do is put away all the stuff that you can't eat. You're literally, you go through all your cabinets and you rifle through and you find out anything that has, you know, nuts, anything bean related, anything wheat related, anything dairy related, anything with sugar, which is basically everything in America, you have to put in boxes and ship it out of your house. Why? Because um, of the thing that's called late night snacking, where it's like you're stressed out and you're like, ah, I'm just going to eat some chips. And Melissa Hartwig, who came up with the crazy idea. She's like, chips, you know, things like that. That's like the food with no breaks. Once you start, there's no breaks. So you just, you can't, you're just like peanut M&Ms, peanut M&Ms, peanut M&Ms. And um, so, so get rid of it. You have to rid yourself of everything that you can't eat um, in order to uh, nourish yourself on good food. So we've got a clean house here, don't we? There's a lot of junk that we feed on in the city. And Peter's going to mention some. Maybe you'd fill in the blank with other things that you feed on, like what keeps you going? What's giving, what's giving you, the, what's fueling the, the, the flame of your life here? Well, he mentions malice, which is like a cultivated hatred of another person. That, that certainly fuels people here in Chicago. Deceit, misleading people just habitually. You're just always lying. You're always maybe even just, just exaggerating. Or what about hypocrisy, pretending to be someone you're not? How many people in Chicago pretend to be someone that you're not? How much is that a part of our culture here, to pretend to be someone that you're not, to have two different lives? What about envy? Envy, wishing you had someone else's life, just scrolling through, looking at someone else's house, looking at someone else's profile, looking at someone else's power, looking at someone else's life and be like, I wish I had that, I wish I had that, and then I'm going to get up in the morning and get that, get what's mine. Or what about slander? Just cutting people down when they're not around. It's like one of those junk food things where, you know, you, 
you're with your friends and you just throw something out there about someone who's not in the room and then they pick up on it and they add a little bit, then all of a sudden the, the conversation becomes kind of fun, doesn't it? And we can feed on that, can't we? Just slander, just someone who's not around. We don't like them, they don't like them. And so we just get together and kind of feed on a mutual dislike of somebody. Is that what's fueling your life here in the city? Is that, kind of, is that your nourishment center? Peter wants us to put it all away, put all that envy away, put all that junk away, that malice, that cultivated hatred, that hypocrisy. Is our soul feeding on cynicism? And that's, is that what we get together and feed off of? Is our soul feeding on unhealthy comparison? Is that kind of like where our, where our roots are attracted to? Comparison. Or schadenfreude. Just lo- we just love it when we see someone else suffer. Is your soul feeding on resentment of your parents? Is your soul feeding on confessing the sins of the generation before you? This has everything to do with nourishing resilient faith in urban soil. The city puts us together, tempts us to feed on things that are not really nourishing for our souls. Peter says, put it all away, stop comparing, stop the malice, confess it as sin, put it out of your house. And then he says, hey, look, verse two, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Peter's gonna use this image of the newborn infant. It's a brand new infant. It's just, it's just days old, and it's longing for the nourishment of its mom. And so it's like, you know, mom, feed me. Bring, I know you're there, and I can smell you over there, and I want that milk. I long for the milk. And the baby doesn't just long for milk once a week, but it's like once every couple hours, and even more so than that. I need that nourishing milk. I need that pure, pure milk to help me grow. Peter is enjoining us to have this level of hunger and yearning. It's like that root system pushing down even further down in urban soil, looking for the nourishment. And he says, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, the nourishing presence of Jesus Christ, that nourishing presence. So it's pure spiritual milk meaning it's not watered down, it's not mixed with pollutants, it's not uh, mixed with stuff that, isn't, that doesn't belong in the pure spiritual milk. And it's also nourishing us with the very presence of Jesus Christ. So what fits this description? What can we nourish ourselves on here in the city that's pure spiritual milk, but it's also giving us a taste of the Lord Jesus? Well, the first thing that fits that description is the word of God. The word of God. Jesus is the living word. The Bible is the written word of God. And through the Holy Spirit, as we come around as a community, come around the scriptures, hear it read, hear it sung, we pray it together in the liturgy, we, 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 uh, we hear it preached, and we sing it in our songs. This is the nourishment that we need to encounter the living word, Jesus Christ. Through the scriptures, the presence of Christ, the nourishing presence of Christ is ministered to us. All the truth about Jesus, the the healing power of the presence of Christ, all of this is from the word of God. We might carry this over into the rest of our life here in the city as we huddle around the word of God through morning prayer or evening prayer or just alone in our room opening up the Bible 
saying, Holy Spirit, open the word of God to me. Minister the presence of Christ. That's one source of the nourishment. What else fits this description? Pure spiritual milk, but it's ministering the presence of Christ. Well, the communion table, the Eucharistic table. Uh, We come to the table to feed on the presence of Christ here at the table. The bread and the wine. And in so doing, we experience his forgiveness, his cleansing, his conviction, uh, his, the sense that we are united with him. The table then extends throughout the week to our homes as we invite our neighbor and friends and coworkers around the table to feed on the presence of Christ in our homes. Both go together. Both should go together. Word and sacrament. We need word and sacrament to, to, to be nourished on the very presence of Jesus Christ. Resilient disciples of Jesus in the city, let the word of God and the presence of God fill more and more of their life here in the city, more and more of their spaces, their private spaces, their public spaces, their head space. The word of God nourishes us with the presence of Christ. The table of the Lord nourishes us with the presence of Christ. And those who make it here in the city who become vibrant urban disciples are those who push their roots down deep because they long for the presence of Christ. The thing is that it is actually more immediately satisfying. It scratches an itch of our souls when we feed on non-nourishing nourishment, when we're comparing ourselves with other people, when we're uh, gossiping about other people. Like that is a fuel of a different kind and it hits our system more quickly but it doesn't really nourish us, does it? It doesn't nourish us. We, it forms an addiction, but it doesn't nourish our souls. The presence of Christ, it might take you time to learn the taste. What does it taste like to have the presence of Christ in your life? You might have to work through some insecurities and some issues to taste the presence of Christ, but it is so worth it because it is nourishing for our souls. So what's nourishing your soul here in Chicago? And are you growing up into salvation through that nourishment? Here's a second question for uh, resilient faith in urban soil. What kingdom are you laboring in? What kingdom are you laboring in? I'm not talking about where you work. It doesn't matter where you work, really. It matters who you're working for ultimately. Uh, All of our loving and working and laboring here in Chicago, who is it for? Who's going to gather up all of those labors and make sense of it? Whose kingdom are you working in? Um, Peter's going to reference two different builders in verses four through eight. Uh, two different building projects, really. One building project is going to be run by the builders, and another building project is going to be run by the living God. And uh, the, the builders are going to, what he says is that the builders reject the cornerstone. They're in the process of building the Tower of Babel. They're in the process of building the beautiful temple in Jerusalem. They're, they're in the process of building the building that they want, the tower that they want, and they, and, they, and they look at Jesus, they're gathering stones, they look at Jesus, his death and resurrection, his example of my life for yours, and they're like, that's a weak, ugly brick, toss it aside. We don't want that brick. We'd rather have a strong brick, a beautiful brick, a brick with power. And so they gather up all the beautiful and strong bricks, and they build the tower they want to build. Peter's going to reference the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In his day, it was like the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Jesus marches into Jerusalem on that humble donkey, and they're like, you know what? No thanks. We don't want a Messiah who suffers. We want a Messiah who conquers. So 
tossed aside, tossed outside of Jerusalem, crucified. But you know what God did? God said, oh, this stone is the stone I want to build my whole kingdom on. The stone that the builders rejected because he came across as too weak, too much my life for yours. He's like, I want to build a beautiful, true, and good kingdom on this cornerstone. And I'm going I'm to build this building for, for generation after generation. It's going to be a living temple. This living resurrected stone is going to support other living resurrected stones. And so I want you and you and you and you and you. I'm going to ensconce you in this beautiful living wall. I'm going to take people from Nigeria and I'm going to take people from Indonesia. I'm going to take people from Mexico and I'm going to take, I'm going to take people from Syria and I'm going to create an incredibly beautiful, multi-ethnic, shining, global family of God built on the cornerstone himself as well as the apostles and prophets and saints from ages past. Karen Job says uh, that um, the structure spoken of here, the structure of the living temple will only be completed when uh, the scaffolding of human history comes down and the kingdom of Christ is revealed in all its glory. So here you have a beautiful temple that God is building. It's true, it's good, it's beautiful. Everything about it shines with the light of Christ. And only when the scaffolding of human history comes down will it be left standing as the last and only building. All the other structures will crumble. So which building project are you a part of? Which building project are you laboring for? Inside or outside the church, it doesn't matter where you spend your time. All your labors in the city, who is it for? You know, the bread and the wine that we have here each week is a symbol of, of our whole life. And so, and I've said this before, members of Emmanuel bake it in their oven and they bring it to church and um, it's brought to the table and when it's on the table, it's in prayer, it's lifted up to the Father through Christ, saying, hey, receive this. This is a symbol of all of our life, all of our labors. God, gather up our whole life, all of our relationships, all of our work, all of our hopes and dreams, all of our failures, even gather it up and make something of it. Here's bread. We need you, we need you to turn it into the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need you to nourish us. We need you to gather this up into your kingdom, into your building. That's what it means to be a royal priesthood. That's what it means to be making spiritual sacrifices to God, that no matter where you're working in the city of Chicago or beyond, that all of you are part of the spiritual priesthood, doing good work that the Father approves of, and he's going to gather all of it up and make it part of this beautiful kingdom, this beautiful temple, this beautiful spiritual sacrifice, this beautiful priesthood, all of us have an opportunity to offer up everything we do in the city of Chicago and beyond to the living God, for him to make sense of it, to him to give it lasting glory, to him to include it in his kingdom. So again, whose kingdom are you working in? There's a bazillion kingdoms in the city of Chicago. There's, first of all, the kingdom of me, and there's the kingdom of you, and everything we want that God doesn't necessarily want. And we're tempted to hoard the labors of our life to what we want, to our schemes, to our strategies. But then there's the other bigger kingdoms. There's the kingdom of, of wherever you work and the power structures there. There's the kingdom of wherever you work out and the power structures there. There's the kingdom of, of money and power and success. The kingdom of politics, the kingdoms of, 
um, anything that you can think of. It's other strategies and other buildings. So as you're there, as disciples of Jesus, whose kingdom are you laboring for? It makes all the difference in the world because when we exist with a my life for yours built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, mindset and spirit, we become a different kind of citizen in our city, don't we? We become a better neighbor in our city. We become a source of life for people. We become living stones that, that embody the resurrection of Jesus. So whose kingdom are you working for scattered throughout the city? That's the second question. The third question is this. Is your identity earned or received? Is your identity earned or is it received? So what do you do? Oh, where are you from? What neighborhood do you live in? Where'd you go to school? What are your future plans? Oh, who do you know? Oh, how long have you known them? Oh, but did you actually hang out or did you just pretend to know them? We get questions like this all the time and there's incredible pressure to fill in the blank with something significant, something we've earned, like we've justified our existence here through accomplishments, through relationships. And there's incredible pressure on the individual. It's kind of an isolating pressure to earn an identity. And it's exhausting to answer that question to ourselves and to others. Justify your existence. Earn your identity. Peter shows us a better way, and that is to receive an identity. Uh, Verse 9, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's like uh, a restful identity here that we receive. It's who we are. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what God has done. He's been faithful to his promises. He's included us in his family by grace through faith. Um, We are a chosen race. We are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Just like the Lord God plucked the nation of Israel, this weak enslaved nation, and bore them on eagle's wings, as our Exodus reading said, bore them on eagle's wings and brought them to Mount Sinai to set them apart as a special chosen nation. So God has taken all of us who've been scattered all over Chicago, who in in many cases don't feel quite at home, and he has set us apart by his grace, by his initiative, and made us a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who have received mercy. This identity is communal. The, uh, The words in, the verbs in the original language here are the second person plural. The second person plural is known in the South as y'all. Okay, so there's a difference between you, individual, and y'all, collective. And this is all y'all. Okay, so um, for instance, y'all are a chosen race. Y'all are a royal priesthood. Y'all are a holy nation. Y'all are a people for his own possession. Um, We can't know ourselves by ourselves. We cannot discover our true, lasting, deep identities 
uh, by looking inside ourselves. We'll get lost in a wild goose chase. Self-knowledge is good. But there's something outside of ourselves, something collective and beautiful that actually is securing, (laughs) that gives us the freedom that we need. We don't have to fill in the blanks. We don't have to prove ourselves because we have a corporate identity, not just with each other here at Emmanuel, but with a larger body of Christ in Chicago on the north, south, and west sides, and the southwest side and the northwest side, as well as the family of God throughout this country, throughout the world, and throughout time. This table is only one piece of the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only one small sliver of it. This table wraps around the globe. We feast with the family of God throughout the world and throughout time. They are a part of us, and we are a part of them. So we can rest in this identity. Urban disciples who have resiliency in their faith, confidence in their faith, confidence in Jesus, learn how to rest in this identity. They receive the identity rather than earn the identity. And when we have that, when we have been nourished by the presence of Christ, when we have been captured by the kingdom of God, we labor for the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of God, and we receive this dignifying uh, identity instead of earning it, we then learn to have the security and the grounding and the confidence to share what God has done in our life with our friends, with our fellow artists, with our coworkers, not in a one-sided conversation of you're wrong, I'm right, and let me tell you why, but a, but a dialogue where we go, hey, here's where I'm at. Yep, I'm, I have part of a church. I follow Jesus, worship Jesus. This is what God's done in my life. And then there isn't that kind of pressure to prove yourself. There isn't that pressure to be accepted. We can simply go public with our faith because we have a resilient faith, even when there's misunderstanding as a result, even when potentially there's marginalization, as there was for the first readers of this letter who were in Asia Minor. Uh, We'll be secure enough to live for the Lord and out of love for our neighbors, even when our neighbors uh, do not contribute to our program even when our neighbors misunderstand us. So what is nourishing you here? And who, which, which kingdom holds your allegiance? Whose kingdom are you working? And is your identity earned or received? I love how the post-communion prayer really ties all this together. I invite you to turn to page 24 in your programs. And we'll just take a look together at the post-communion prayer, the prayer of thanksgiving. Here's what it says. Heavenly Father, we thank you for feeding us with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. All right, there's the nourishment. And for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members of your Son. There's that identity piece that we receive. And heirs of your eternal kingdom. All right, that's the kingdom we're working for and working in, no matter where we work at or where we study at. And that's a beautiful, good, and true kingdom. Okay, so what impact does that have? And now, Father, send us out. Send us out wherever you have us to live and work and study and be. Send us out to do the work you have given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. 
To him, to you, and to the Holy Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. That's a beautiful prayer, isn't it? And it's tying together all this grace that we can just rest in and yearn for together as God's people. Let's not just pray this prayer every time we gather, all right? Let's, let's live this prayer together. Let's live this prayer together in the city of Chicago. Let's, let's seek out the resilient faith in urban soil that we've been called to. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.